It's time for the 7th Avenue Project, online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hi, everybody. It's the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, the dawn of the digital age. We're going to hear an interview with the historian George Dyson about his new book, Turing's Cathedral. It traces some of the beginnings of modern computing back to a really extraordinary group of scientists at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. Now, as you may know, the Institute is one of the world's ultimate think tanks. And during the 1940s and 50s, it was a refuge for some of Europe's greatest scientists. Many of them were fleeing the Nazis in World War II. Albert Einstein was there, so was the great logician Kurt Gödel, and the computer science pioneer John von Neumann. Von Neumann headed up something called the Electronic Computer Project, which is an unassuming name for a very ambitious effort to create the world's most advanced calculating machine. And this is when computing was really in diapers. It was in its infancy. But in the course of this project, von Neumann and his friends invented many of the concepts that underlie computing today. They were laying the foundations. You might even say the DNA. In writing this book, George Dyson wasn't just going back to computing's origins. He was returning, in a sense, to his own roots. He grew up at the Institute for Advanced Study. He's the son of the famous physicist Freeman Dyson and the mathematician Verena Huber Dyson. He left that world behind as a teenager in the 1960s, he went west and became kind of a back-to-nature guy. But he eventually found his way back to science and technology as a writer and historian. His own journey is really quite fascinating, and we're going to spend some time talking about it today. And it touches on one of the major themes of the book, which is the relationship between what George Dyson calls the digital universe and the natural world. George Dyson spoke to me from the Institute for Advanced Study, where he was paying a visit and giving a lecture on the Electronic Computer Project. So you grew up, really, at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, uh, surrounded by, you know, some of the brightest minds on the planet. Uh, yes. My mother and my father came here as mathematicians right after World War II. But when you're a child, everything seems normal. Kind of no matter where <laughs> you grew up, that's just the way it is. You, you didn't live on the grounds of the Institute for Advanced Study, did you? Pretty much. When they set up this place, they bought 600 acres, 610 acres, and then they let the permanent people build houses on sort of the outskirts of that land. So we had one of those houses. The house belongs to the owner, but it can only be sold back to the Institute. It's, it's, a very, it's, a, it's actually a feudal system. Well, that does sound like a very unusual childhood then. Yeah, it's sad in a way because they're roughly 20 to 25 permanent people. You either get invited for a one year or you get invited for life. And sort of being a child of, of someone here for life, your, your childhood was this every year you would make all these new friends from other countries who were here for a year, and then they would leave. Uh-huh. Well, well did you like it, or did you feel like getting the hell away from it? when you, you know, reached a certain age? Pretty much the latter, getting the <laughs> hell away from it. I mean, you have to take that in, in the context of the times. It was, of course, the 1960s. It wasn't so much I didn't like it. I, I just liked the wilderness, I mean, it, which is what I liked about this, this place here. Was this, you know, to a child, these 600 acres of woods were, it was like uh, Winnie the Pooh, you know, the 100-acre woods. And the kids who were my friends, we spent all our time just exploring the woods. And oh, yeah. When I got older, I, you know, I wanted to go further. So at what point did you leave Princeton? I left when I was 16 and went briefly to California and then to Vancouver, Canada. And what did you do? I went to my sister's wedding. I had a old, much older sister who got married in Vancouver. And when I was there, I saw an ad for a job on a boat. And I, I took it and, you know, never looked back. Or uh -huh. <laughs> you became kind of a, an outdoorsman and a serious outdoorsman. Yes, I, be, you know, I became a boat builder and, and spent a lot of time. I love and still do the, the Canadian uh, West Coast research. You have wilderness that's 
you know, as real a wilderness as anything we have in our, you know, in our national parks or anything, but it's not a national park. It's it's a place where real people live and have jobs and, and work, and it just was a, a very exciting place to be as a teenager. Were you a rebel? Were you part of the counterculture at that time? Uh, yes, very much so. I mean, I, I built a treehouse 95 feet up in a Douglas fir, and, you know, not to make any political statement, but was definitely part of the the counterculture of the time, which was very strong in Canada, and, and I think Canada deserves a lot of credit for for welcoming uh, all these oddball Americans who were who were showing up. You know, I was not old enough to be drafted, but I was certainly part of that uh, movement of people who did end up in Canada and benefited Canada tremendously. The same way, sort of the, these Hungarians who did all this great science benefited the United States by by being sort of refugees from somewhere else. Um, were you able then to avoid the draft by being in Canada? Yes, there was a very unfair loophole that, you know, I followed all the letter of the law. I mean, as soon as I turned 18, I went to the American consulate and registered for the draft and got a draft card. But they never drafted anybody who was outside the country. It's, you know, a little bit suspicious that if you think about who who is outside the country, well, that's the you know, who would register for the draft at foreign consulates, that's the children of diplomats and so on. So, mm-hmm. so, they, so it was a very privileged class. If you went to the American consulate in Vancouver and registered for the draft, you were completely legal and legitimate and, and more or less assured of not being drafted. Tell me about that uh, fir tree. <laughs> you lived 90 feet up in, in a fir tree? 95 feet, right, 95. right on the edge of the ocean. So if you drop something out the window, it, it, <laughs> you know, it was absolutely... Beautiful. I, I lived there three years, and they were, I think, in some ways, the most memorable three years of my life. What, what, what kind of house did you build in this a tree? Very small house. I mean, you know, about eight feet square. Had a wood stove and everything I needed. And, and I read books I would never have time to read today. You know, the original, complete Cook's journals of his voyage to the Pacific, six thousand pages. Oh boy. Um, it was. It was. It was wonderful. Um, you had a wood stove up in the tree. You, you got wood up there, and you you burned it in the tree. Yeah, I had a, uh, you know, maybe the tree flinched at that a bit. But <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> it was, uh, I had a rope and pulleys to bring stuff up. and It was, I mean, it was practical in the sense that this was in the rainforest, and on the ground everything was damp and wet and dark, and at the, in the forest canopy and now of course people have studied that it's, it's a very different ecosystem up there at the top there's there's sunlight it's dry uh, it, was, it was absolutely an incredible place to live and be, you know in the winter time fog would come in so that the top of the tree would be above the fog <laughs> and what about storms uh yeah it was of course being on the water and it was also at the, at the end of a fjord it got terrific uh you know i mean it'd be 60 70 knot winds so the, the whole house would move around you know 10 or 15 feet in a in a what we now would call chaotic motion oh yeah and fir trees are want to fall sometimes uh in some places at least they have kind of shallow roots and can topple did you ever worry about that i didn't really i figured being up there was as safe as being on the ground and i I worried at first but after after getting through the first couple bad storms i i got actually feeling very secure and it uh, and the trees self-protect in an interesting way. When the wind reaches a certain point, the tree starts sacrificing branches. The branches are very, I think, cleverly engineered to break off, and that that saves the tree at the expense of some of the branches. Um, I have heard that during this time when you um, were living in the wilderness and you know part of the uh, you know the youth movement and all that, that you were kind of estranged from your your physicist dad, Freeman Dyson. Yes, there was several years where we we had almost no contact. I mean, we, we would write letters to each other, but it was a very sparse correspondence. What had caused the alienation? I think, in a certain sense, I, I mean, you should ask, Chris, my father, I just had lunch with him. He, oh, really? <laughs> you know, I think he really wanted to leave me alone to go my own way. And, and later people told me how sort of proud he was of that. And I was just off in my different world. I mean, I really was, it was almost like a different universe, the, the places I was going and the people I was with. So my father and his life here sort of drifted farther and farther away. And then, this may, might have been the next question, 
you were going to ask, but we, in a way we were reunited by a, a fellow Californian of yours who, you know, who wrote a book about us. And then as part of the book, he kind of needed us to, to meet. <laughs> this is Kenneth, or Kenneth Ken Brower. Brower, yeah. He lives in Berkeley and, and, and did a tremendous thing for, for us as a family and, and, and the world. I mean, because he, he sort of, in a way, as the observer by, you know, he, he drove Freeman up Vancouver Island in his Volkswagen van to go, you know, to go find me and, and meet. And, uh, you know, that was a big part of his book, but it also really did bring us back together in a real way and made a very good story. Uh, yeah, I haven't read that book. Um, it, it's kind of hard to find, I think, uh, these days. Well, it's out of print, but now anything is, I mean, it was printed in huge numbers, so it's, it's you know, you buy it used for $2, but it's, it's not in print. I don't know why. It stayed in print for, you know, for more than 20 years. And it's called what, by the way? The Starship and the Canoe. The Starship and the Canoe, referring to your father's grand plans for a nuclear-powered uh, spaceship and your own absorption in building boats and kayaks. Yeah, I yeah? built this huge kayak. <laughs> like a nuclear-powered kayak. <laughs> um, but uh, you had gotten to know the famous Brower family. Uh, Kenneth is the son of David Brower, who was the head of the Sierra Club, You know, one of the most famous environmentalists in America. And you had sort of stumbled into that? Well, they more or less rescued me or adopted me. <clears throat> I mean, in a way, David Brower was almost a, a father figure. He, uh, I got to know his children, his daughter Barbara and uh, his youngest son, John, who's still really my best friend. And, and uh, they kind of saw me as homeless and took me in. I, I stayed in their house. And, see, I grew up in a family with six sisters and no brothers. And the uh, Browers were the reverse one one daughter and three brothers, so they they sort of became the brothers that I didn't didn't have. And David was an amazing man. I mean, he, he we remember him as a conservationist, but he was also a terrific mountaineer who did you know a large number of first ascents, led the Tenth Mountain Division during World War II. Uh, uh, so he had this mix of of skills and history, and, and also grew up in California, had roots there. That, that so I you know I think. Awful lot of what I learned, I learned from him. Hmm. During this time, though, when you were about as far away from the Institute for Advanced Study and what it does as you could be, what was your view of the computer science that you would later, you know, study in depth and is the basis of this new book? Well, I was always fascinated by it. I mean, as a young child, I spent half my time catching animals in the woods here and, and half the time taking apart electronic stuff. It was, <laughs> that was the great age of electronics. I mean, the shift was just taking place between vacuum tubes to transistors. So there were still vacuum tubes were still out there warm and running and transistors were just becoming commercially available. It was, it was a fascinating time to be interested in electronics. And I joined the radio club and knew very much what was going on. And then sort of as the sixties came along, became not not terrified of it, but could see where it was going, that these machines were clearly going to control the world. And, I, you know, at that time, I didn't want anything to do with it. And they were being used to, in, in part, to design weapons. As you recount in your book, you know, a lot of the motivation behind some of the big computer projects was to simulate nuclear weapons. Was that troubling to you, too? Well, that was kept pretty secret. You know, that was just whispered around here that really... They oh, is that right? It was a deep secret at the time. could not be talked about. But was there a sense then, when you were a kid there, that secret projects were going on that yes. no one yeah, could talk yeah. about? Right. And, and children, I mean, children have an amazingly good instinct <laughs> for things. You know, children, if you try and hide the chocolate, a six-year-old kid will know where you hid it. So we were very aware that there were things they were talking about that, that we weren't supposed to hear. Well, and the and the hydrogen bomb was a terrifying thing. I mean, we also forget how in the 1950s it really looked bad. I mean, the, we and the Soviet Union were full speed building these bombs that, you know, were 10 megatons and making plans to use them if need be. And that was it was scary in a way that it's hard to imagine now because now we're now it's the reverse. Now the government is is trying to make us scared of things we don't really need to be scared of. I don't really need to be scared that some dirty bomb is going to wipe out 
New York, but they're, you know, we're supposed to be scared of that. In, in the 50s, it was the reverse. We were building these real weapons of global destruction, and, you know, the government was telling us, uh, don't worry, you know, put crackers in your fallout shelter and you'll be okay. Uh, duck and cover, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, when your politics turned, you know, when you became a teenager and, and in your 20s, when you, you know, became a, a lefty environmentalist, did you did you look dimly then on these kinds of projects and maybe on that world of dry geekery that was going on back where you grew up or, or no? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I sort of I had a foot in both worlds. I mean, I, I ended up being very close to the group that became Greenpeace, actually because my sister was their treasurer, so the meetings used to be in, she was one of the few people who had a stable address, so the, you know, the meetings would be in her living room, the group that then went off to Amchitka on, on the Phyllis Cormac to try to try and stop the, the Amchitka test, which was actually a test of the, of the actual five megaton warhead that we uh, deployed. Oh yeah, that was a very controversial, very controversial yeah. test, and, and very important test. And what was interesting was in, in later years for for the book before this one on, on Project Orion, I went and interviewed these two Air Force physicists who were retired and living in the mountains of Colorado, and they were the guys who had been running that test. And I got the story from their side, and and they had tremendous respect for these crazy Canadians out there in this fishing boat, eighty foot halibut boat you know trying to stop their test oh really but huh. but so it was very very interesting i someday i, I gotta write that story from both sides huh. they, the interesting thing was they were not going to stop the test the greenpeace group by then were working in washington to get an injunction and if the injunction had gone through there was going to be a communications failure you know, radio failure <laughs> because the countdown had already. There was like a thirty-day countdown on that test, and it couldn't could not be stopped. So it's very you know. So in my from my point of view, I knew the physicists who had designed this thing, and they they weren't bad people. And the engineers drilling the holes in the rock weren't bad people, and the and these Air Force generals weren't bad. But there were no bad people. It just. It just sort of was a bad idea, but but not with bad people. I uh, watched a documentary a few years back about the era of nuclear testing and hadn't realized, really, just how many tests we and the Soviet Union had conducted. But there were literally hundreds, hundreds of hydrogen bombs set off. Um, in the atmosphere. In the atmosphere, and, and some underground, but, you know, mushroom clouds all over the place during the 1950s. Right, and that, that's why Orion didn't look so bad, because, I mean, a full Orion mission taking 100 people to Saturn was, you know, was going to be 1% of that. Effectively, you could do it as a test without adding to the... <laughs> there were so many bombs going off anyway, you say. Right, it was, it was a useful test in itself, and you got something... It did something with it, but I think in in some ways we live in a more dangerous world now that we are not testing. That in all these interviews I did with, in many cases, physicists who had then become nuclear weapons policy people in government and so on, they, they all would start the interview by saying, you know, let me tell you about the time I was out at Anahuitac and saw, you know, Castle Bravo or one of those huge tests, and it, it was a visceral emotional thing you know they had seen one of those bombs go off and they knew in their heart that their job was to make sure we never had a nuclear war and and now we live in a world where the military decisions are in the hands of a new generation who has never seen an atmospheric test and i think in some ways that's that's scary hmm. um by the way we left a couple threads hanging i'm gonna just yeah. sort of tie them up project orion was the brainchild of your father freeman dyson and uh i guess was it ted taylor it, it was really the brainchild of stan ulam stan ulam okay polish mathematician mathematician it, it, ted taylor turned it into a real project and, and freeman was sort of the co-pilot but this was this was a, a, an idea for a spaceship that was powered by by nuclear explosions Right, lots of them. Lots of them. <laughs> Be propelled by one explosion and then another and then another, right? Being pushed along by yeah, detonation. Two and four per second. <laughs> These are smallish explosions. Very small, and it, and it only takes a reasonably small number to get you know, out. You don't even go into orbit. Our normal spacecraft 
you know, they have to leave Earth, go into orbit, and then go somewhere else. This just goes straight to Mars, no, no orbit. Now, this, of course, project never got off the ground. It remained on, on paper only, but you're reminding me that you have met and talked to Edward Teller, who was also part of this group of leading-edge physicists at the time who were doing work on nuclear uh, weapons and also uh, fundamental physics. And he has often depicted as a kind of nuclear fanatic, a guy who never met a bomb he didn't like. Right. What, what do you think of him? Again, there's two sides to everybody. And he, he was, in some ways, pushed into a corner and, and got very defensive. In other ways, he was a little too gung-ho about the, about the weapons. And, but, you know, you got to remember he was a human being, and he was a Hungarian refugee, and, and all these people who who I got to know either in person or through their private letters and so on, you know, they like Stan Uwam had lost everybody except his younger brother in the, in the Polish Holocaust, and his father died burning his law books trying to keep warm in the, in the Polish ghetto. And so the, these people had a very strong motivation to make sure that the you know that we had the most powerful weapons on our side and that and it was it was very clear and black and white in a way that it, it is no longer true today and that's that's where Edward Teller was coming from hmm. when I watched this uh, documentary I just mentioned uh, about nuclear testing and you know saw mushroom cloud after mushroom cloud um, saw all these these above ground tests with massive hydrogen bombs you'd see these guys in white coats standing at a distance and observing and doing these seemingly crazy things let's try two bombs together let's try one underwater and one drop from a plane let's see what happens when we you know set one off deep underground what happens when we do this when we do that i honestly had a sense of geeks doing their thing without any constraints you know with a huge paycheck and nobody saying wait this is crazy I mean, not just the potential destruction of the world, but just the fallout, the radioactive fallout they were generating. Yes, and there's, there's again, two contextual things to remember that partly this was driven by they knew there was going to be a moratorium. It was clear to everybody that if you just kept testing, it would never stop and that there would be a moratorium. So it was... So we think of the arms race as between the United States and the Soviet Union really the arms race was against the moratorium. It was these guys, these, as you noticed, geeky physicists, <laughs> saying, we've got to try this before the moratorium, so let's rush. That was the race. And the other race, the bigger race in between the Americans and the Soviets, was the race between Los Alamos and Livermore. Because we, you know, that, that was Edward Teller's sort of big... Yeah, yes, yeah, so competition. We had two weapons labs, and it was like... Uh, it was like Harvard versus Dartmouth. I mean, they just they, they they were competing. They did three. Let's do four. Well, that's exactly the sense I got of yeah. of of sort of boys will be boys, you know, guys trying their latest gimmicks out, you know, like hot rods, uh, but but untethered to the larger consequences. Yes, and with there's a absolutely incredibly good official history of the American testing program that's that's been declassified. It's about 500 pages written by someone who really put their life into it, William Ogle. And it, it's an amazing document to read the, the real story of, of all those tests. So what can I say? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's um, now circle back to yeah. the, the subject at hand, um, this history of computing at the Institute for Advanced Study that you've written, Turing's Cathedral. When did you after your, you know, many years of building kayaks, living in a fir tree, being a Westerner, you know, living in Canada and California, come back to this this subject that had been present from your childhood and start really exploring it again. Yeah, well, you sort of answered half that question already, which <laughs> is that Kenneth Brower shows up and writes this book, The Starship and the Canoe, that essentially is my biography. Yeah, it's about you and your dad and how different you were and how he had been the, the theoretical physicist, and you had been the, the rugged outdoorsman, and you guys were estranged for a while. And then you say Kenneth is the one who actually arranged for the sake of the book to get you guys back together. Right, and then he publishes this book, and if you're, if you're at heart a rebel, and then somebody publishes your biography at age 25, wow, <laughs> um, which cast me as completely this you know, the voice of nature in the wilderness. Yeah. I mean, Ken, he, he, he did this for dramatic reasons, and it's true. I mean, he made, he made Freeman sort of the voice of science and me the voice of nature. And 
whereas there's, as you can see, there's technology on my side and nature on my father's side. But but it, it worked for the book. But, you know, my reaction was, well, I'm, I don't want to spend the rest of my life being this character in Kenneth Brower's book. So I started to expand a little bit. And, and uh, I had watched what was going on with computing through my sister Esther, who who was writing about the industry, and sent me very kindly sent me her newsletters, and then invited me to her conferences. So I, I just saw how it had changed since since I was a kid, and there was one computer in this low building on the other side of the field. And at that time, this is you know early 1980s. You know, we have floppy disks. We don't no internet really, or no internet that's public. Right. Uh, but you could kind of see it all coming, and that interested me enough to write a book about that, which, uh-huh. which was the earlier book, Darwin Among the Machines, which was yeah. a very strange sort of look back at the deep origins of digital computing and and, and where it was going to go sort of as a living force, which I saw very felt very strongly about, that that, that these machines were, were coming to life in a way that, that people just didn't see because they didn't look at it the way a naturalist would look at it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, that, of course, theme runs through the new book as well. Yeah, I tried to tone it down. I mean, I tried, I, <laughs> this new book, I tried to be more, I'm going to tell the story of these crazy people and what happened and let the, you know, let the reader kind of see where it's going for themselves. Well, um, the Institute for Advanced Study was not the, the home of the very first electronic computer. Um, it didn't invent it, right? There were some out there. Uh, yeah, lots out there. There were yeah. lots out there in the '40s when the institute started to get into this subject, right? Right. The fundamental thing that happened here was, which is why I became so interested, that you know what we call the digital universe is this address matrix, where you know this entire interview will go into a little piece of a matrix of memory locations as as bits, and and that now is global. I mean, when you look up a web page in Kazakhstan, it's it's part of that enormous two-dimensional address matrix that started at a single point. It happens that the single point it can be traced to is this little matrix that, that started here that was 32 by 32 by 40 bits, this tiny little five kilobyte nucleus that wasn't the only one, but it was the one whose sort of address system you know, that's what became the zip code for the whole thing. Well, let's let's explain what you mean, George. Um, I think people in, in the audience will know, of course, that their computers have memory chips, and those memory chips they may know are kind of an array of storage cells that just each contain one bit of information. Uh, there's rows and columns, you know, like a... Like a chessboard. Like a chessboard, right? And when you... The, the way the computer works is to fetch some data from that right. memory and to fetch an instruction from that memory which tells it what to do with the data. So it might fetch a couple of numbers and fetch an instruction that says multiply them together, and that's a computation. But you see this, what you call address matrix, this this memory array, is something really profound. And, you know, i, I got to say, I, I've always just taken it for granted. Oh, it's obvious, you know? That's how you store digital information. Right, but somehow somebody had to do that for the first time. It, uh-huh. it wasn't here forever, and one day it was. And I'm interested in the origins of things what was that moment when this thing happened that we now all, that increasingly is the world we live in, is a digital world? Mm-hmm. I think it's a very interesting question. and it, It's not the question of who built the first computer. It's the question of who, of where did that address matrix come from and how did it explode so quickly? So um, there were computers. There was the very famous ENIAC computer that the U.S. Army had used to uh, compute artillery tables for aiming artillery. Uh, but in, uh, was it 1945 or 6, the Institute for Advanced Study really started its own project? Um, Late 1945. And, we, and there were very strong projects in Britain. Great Britain was, was way ahead at the beginning with the computers <laughs> that they built for doing code-breaking during World War II. So these things were driven in secret during the war. Then after the war, suddenly things come out in the open. But in in no case had the ENIAC or say the Colossus, which was one of the, the British. British computers, they hadn't used this this memory matrix you're describing. No, they didn't have a fully what you now would call a fully random access memory that was electronic. So you can make a very reasonable simplification, saying that up until that time, 
memory worked at the speed of sound, and suddenly memory began to work at the speed of light. Uh huh. Uh huh. Just a huge difference in in speed. And this was something that happened right there at the Institute for Advanced Study, and under the guidance of John von Neumann, who's really maybe the central figure in your book. Yeah, he's like the orchestra conductor. Who maybe he doesn't, he didn't write the music. You know, he took other people's ideas, and he couldn't play the violin, but he he knew where to find a good violin player. When he <laughs> one. But he did have plenty of amazing ideas of his own. I mean, he was one of the most fertile minds of the 20th century. Certainly. Yeah. And- and largely by putting ideas together. He just had this genius for for saying, let's put this together with this that no one else had done and get it to work. And he had, and then he had the connections to the money and the government and the problem. I mean, he was consumed with this question of whether you could build a hydrogen bomb or not. And that's why they needed the fast machine. Uh-huh. Um, von Neumann, as you say in your book, was a uh, Hungarian refugee. He was Jewish. Uh, he had fled... Well, actually, it fled is the wrong word, he right? He left before. Yeah. yeah, so refugee is the wrong word. He had left Hungary before the Nazis took over, um, just before. He got out yeah. at a good time, came to the U.S., but this guy was a polymath, if there ever was one. If you read much about 20th century science, you bump into von Neumann all over the place in physics, in economics, game theory, computer science, of course, and he was even dabbling in ideas, you know, that had to do with biology. Yeah, very strongly. So it's strange, the phenomenon where physicists, if they live long enough, they become biologists. <laughs> oh, that's a subject for a whole interview, I think. Um, and, and, I mean, you're in a good position to say that, obviously, growing up with a physicist and all of that. Um, why is that? I think think because biology is it's just so damn interesting and so complicated and it, it just becomes irresistible once you've done your physics i mean if you look you know, freeman my father i think it may end up being known for his biology as much as his physics really and leo Szilard became a biologist stan ulam became interested but it. it's hard to find a you know one of these great physicists who didn't somehow later become fascinated with biology. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, of course, Francis Crick was trained as a physicist, yeah? Right, yeah. He, well, he was smart enough to switch early. And, you know, he, he asked my father, who told him, no, that's a... <laughs> that actually, was, it was James Watson who asked Freeman, should he switch? And, and Freeman said, oh, no, certainly not. Oh, Watson was a physicist also? Yes. I oh, I didn't or, realize or that. He, he, or it was a question whether which, which he should which go Which to into. go into. Wow, wow, I didn't know that. But but, but um, back to computing history. So von Neumann heads up this amazing team of incredibly creative and smart guys from all over the world to create this computer at uh, the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And by the way, I want to clear up a, a common confusion that the Institute for Advanced Study is not part of Princeton University. Right. It is this separate world unto itself. Yes. <laughs> um, but what did they create then? What did these guys ultimately create? They built this machine that they named the Maniac, Mathematical and Numerical Integrator and Computer, which was in some way they were making fun of the ENIAC. Yeah. And although the ENIAC people say they, they took the name, too. And, they, and the thing to remember is that more than half of the engineers here came straight from the ENIAC. I mean, oh, is like, that right? Von Neumann's thing was, in a way, it was, well, the ENIAC group, they've done their job. It's not moving fast enough. I'm going to bring the guys over here and give them everything they want. That that was a very attractive offer. They couldn't, and and he promised them patent rights. You have to forget that. That at the beginning, the engineers thought they were going to have a share in the patent rights. That, that's why a lot of them moved here. Uh huh. Uh huh. And that's another whole story. What happened to that deal? But they they saw these brilliant men and brilliant women. A lot of the key roles were played by women. They they show up and start building this machine that, in the end, was quite small. It was two feet by eight feet by six feet high. It was you know, the size of a, of a commercial refrigerator. And almost every microprocessor we use today is, is effectively still an exact copy of that machine. It just, <laughs> it just worked so well. In fact, if you brought any of those people back today, there's one or two still alive, they would be stunned that our design still work the same way. I mean, they thought they were just building this machine to solve a problem, and after a couple of years, you know, someone would design a better computer. They didn't, they didn't at all think that they had 
come up with the optimum design. But once it got going and once people started writing the software for it, then it became very hard to change the architecture. So now we sort of we're sort of stuck with the same machine. It just runs faster and faster and faster and cheaper. Now, when you say the same machine, you're you're talking about sort of the the real core architecture, uh, the, right, way the way that... the fundamental way it it works of you know where it stores the data and the instructions and how it. The, we've just miniaturized it. You know, instead of vacuum tubes and cathode ray tubes, it's all done etched in you know these sub microscopic silicon, but it's the same machine. And we're talking about an architecture that basically stores instructions and data in a memory, right, and fetches them to an arithmetic and logic unit that does the the actual calculation, right? Right. It works because of things called shift registers, which some you know somebody had to figure out. Mm-hmm. And then once they were figured out, they didn't change. But but we shouldn't go too far with that because there are plenty of computers that don't use the so-called von Neumann architecture. You know, there's a there's a wide variety of other kinds of computer architectures out there. There are, but the strange thing is that most of them still use, you know, these processing chips that are copies of this same thing. It just it just became, you know, you can buy one now that they're they cost pennies, so it's just it's just too hard to resist. So even even our, our parallel computers using different architectures fundamentally run on the same. But that that could change. It's entirely possible we could we could shift to something completely different. That's you know, that's another subject. But uh, well, you say some really interesting things about changes in in computing paradigms. You say the first epic began. I'm I'm paraphrasing you here right. with the random access storage matrix about which we already talked. The second era was the introduction of the internet. Uh, and, and why do you see that as a different era, even though it's powered by the same kinds of computers, right? Uh, it's a giant network that consists of many nodes that are themselves using this traditional architecture you described, right? Right. It's sort of it's, it's sort of like adding another dimension. Mm-hmm. The original matrix was two-dimensional. It was sort of flat. And mm-hmm. The Internet allows, you know, allows multiple machines to be working with the same programs at the same time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's a different thing. Instead of the original Turing model, the, the machine does only one thing at one time. Now we have all these machines doing, doing things at the same time. And then you say the third epoch is the introduction of template-based addressing. What is this, and when did that happen? That sort of has happened slow, slowly and gradually, and we haven't, I think, recognized it and noticed, but that... The big problem with this von Neumann scheme that drove everybody crazy at the beginning, and then we just sort of got used to it, is that every bit of code has an exact, precise numerical address. So it's like if you're, you know, if it's supposed to be 113 Magnolia Lane and you say 112, there's no there's no postman who knows that, oh, you meant the house across <laughs> the street. It's, and just everything shuts down. The whole world comes to a halt if one letter gets to the wrong address. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what most computer programmers over the last 50 years have spent most of their time making sure all those addresses are precisely right and in precise sequence. If, if an instruction is one you know, one step out of sequence, everything also comes to a halt. So everything mm-hmm. has to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Now, in biology, we do a lot of information processing you know, to make a cell run or something, but it doesn't run that way. It, the information is addressed by template. You you know, you have a string of DNA that has a template that, that matches a particular protein, and but it doesn't have to exactly perfectly match, and you don't have to know exactly where that protein you want is. You just say, I want the next protein that matches this template. And what's happened now with the Internet, and with I mean, Google is a perfect example, is that now we are finally starting to address data by template rather than, you don't, you know, if you're looking for a, copy of a article that was in the New York Times, you don't need to know exactly where it is. You just need to know some little string that's identifiable, maybe who the author was or something, and then and then you send Google out looking for it, and it'll find the matches where, wherever they are. And that's a very, very different way of addressing data, and it's, it's very powerful, and the companies that are doing so well right now are, are using that to their advantage because it's much more flexible and robust. It can be mistaken, of course, easily. Uh, a little string inside a, a long, um, you know, page right. of, of can, text could 
could bring you the wrong document, right? Um, exactly. So you then you have to build architectures that are sort of flexible enough to, to withstand that and to take advantage of, of ambiguity, which is what, what nature does. Are the machines getting flexible, or is it is it we who are flexible when we use those machines? It's more the the codes are getting flexible. I mean, huh. It's odd that the, at the beginning, in the time of the Institute project here, you know, the machine was breaking down all the time. The machine was very sloppy. The hardware was was really bad, and the but the codes were small enough you could make sure the code was perfect. And now it's the reverse. You know, your laptop runs for six weeks without one bit being wrong. It's, mm-hmm. They're perfect. And all the problems are in the code. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's where the work is being done to you know to make the systems more flexible is in the coding. And the- mm-hmm. You're reminding me of a concept you talk about in the book. Uh, you mentioned tu- a Turing machine a moment ago. That's named after Alan Turing, a kind of fundamental computational process that he defined. But he also described something he called the Oracle machine, a different kind of computer. Right, very early. I mean, he came here, you know, not just only being Princeton-centric, but... He came here to Princeton in 1936 and sort of brought these ideas, which is, I think, one reason that, that you know, why did it happen here? Partly, I think, because Turing had been here and sort of planted the seeds for, the, for this thing to grow. But, but when he came here in 1936, he had just finished this great paper on, on the computable numbers, which is where the Turing machine comes from, that we think of as the, the archetype of deterministic computation. And Almost immediately, he he got bored with that and started thinking about non-deterministic computation because he saw the limits of what these perfect deterministic machines could do. So he wondered what you could do with machines that made mistakes, tolerated mistakes, and then invented something called the Oracle machine, which sort of follows pure logic for a certain number of steps. And then if it gets to somewhere where the next step isn't clear, it asks an Oracle (laughs) <laughs> uh, which could be a guess, it could be flipping a coin, it could be consulting some other, perhaps non-computable function. And and this was a very, very profound idea that was public, that was his PhD thesis while he was here at the, you know, to confuse people completely. He was at the university, not the institute. And that paper, I think, still has a very rich future in, in front of it, because if you look at something like Google, it actually is an oracle machine that the Google machine itself, all their networks, you know, are these perfectly deterministic computers following deterministic programs. And us human beings, when when we click on something, we become sort of the non-deterministic oracles that are consulted by this deterministic machine. It's it's very much a fruition of, of Alan Turing's idea. Well, I mean, you could say that, okay, the machines, the the Google machines, no matter how many of them there are and no matter how fast they are, you know, are fundamentally kind of dumb, right? But but human beings are supplying a lot of the intelligence that makes the whole system work. We're saying, that's the correct hit. I like that search result. Uh, and when we say that enough to the computer, it begins to rank that search result higher. Exactly. It, it immediately adds that click into the state of the deterministic machine. It just keeps growing. It's, sort of like, it's almost as if the search engine is reading our minds. Right, right. So So Turing had this idea, though, that the machine could learn, in a sense, from, right. from inpu- external inputs. Yeah, he said, again, right at the beginning, he said the machines will never be intelligent unless they are allowed to make mistakes. If they, if they never make mistakes, they will never be intelligent. And then, and then something has to tell them that was wrong, and here's the right result. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a person. It can be the, the world at large. I mean, you know, an animal learns what's right and wrong by, right, right. by what happens next. Uh, this is one of the things that's, that's really remarkable in the story you tell, that these guys weren't just, say, futzing around uh, inventing the wheel, you know, with stone tools and going no further. They were thinking decades ahead the whole time. They were talking about artificial intelligence. They were talking about simulating not just nuclear explosions, but simulating life itself. I mean, they were so visionary, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing. It is amazing. And it's, what's amazing is why, how have we lost so much of that vision? It's, 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 it's strange. Or we're getting back around to it now, yeah? Hope, hopefully. I mean, here uh-huh. we are with all these infinitely better tools, but we don't seem to have a, a lot more vision. <laughs> um, and yet that whole project, uh, you, you mentioned the Maniac, the, the computer they did design, uh, the size of a refrigerator, 
they also jokingly called it the Johnniac, right, after John von Neumann? Well, no, they built, see, they immediately built copies of this machine, every, which is how it propagated. So the, there was a copy built in, Los, in Santa Monica by the Rand Corporation, and in sort of in honor of von Neumann, they named that one. Oh, the okay, the okay, <laughs> okay. But they built the, the Maniac, they used it... Um, Again, for nuclear uh, nuclear research, but also uh, to simulate weather and, uh, again, to, to simulate some biological processes. But it was eventually unplugged. And was it disassembled? Whatever happened to the maniac? Yeah, it's very sad. I mean, when, and, I mean it's, what's strange is, I mean, tonight, I mean, in a few hours, I'm having dinner with the trustees here at, the, at Oppenheimer's house. And, you know, and I'm giving the between cocktails and dinner talk about this great project that now they're so proud of. <laughs> but at the time, they, they weren't proud of it at all. I mean, as soon as von Neumann died... Um, in 1957. Yeah, he, he dies even before he died. As soon as he, he left to go work for the AEC, the, the, the project was essentially terminated. The machine itself was given to Princeton University to keep it running, and they couldn't keep it running. And finally, at midnight... July 15th, 1958, it was unplugged for the last time. By then, by 1958, you could buy a perfectly good computer from IBM, so why, why keep this old machine running? Mm-hmm. But what is sad was that they had the beginnings of, of a really great, what we would now call computer science department, and, and that was not seen as, as something important enough to keep going. So th- these major, major early you know steps in, in computer science were done with government support. In in England, it was the code-breaking effort during World War II. Uh, with the ENIAC at the University of Pennsylvania, it was, again, the the military. And with the MANIAC, you know, nuclear um, research for the military was also a high priority. At what point did computing really primarily become the province of the private sector of um, companies like IBM and Burroughs and well, Univac? And yeah, early- pretty pretty much in that time period between, you know, between 1940. 1940- in 1958. I mean, UNIVAC, that was the ENIAC people, Eckert and Mockley, who formed their own company, the Electronic Control Company. They were doing great. They, they were way ahead of IBM. And there, there's another whole sort of dark story of how they had, you know, some pretty big wrenches thrown in their works that, that brought them, you know, into bankruptcy. But the other thing people forget is that von Neumann was consulting for IBM as early as 1945. So, so all this information was made public, but it was also one of the places it was made public to was IBM, who, who very quickly took the lead. Um, there were other companies, you know, some of them we've forgotten about. Remington, Sperry Rand, National Cash Register had a big computing effort. But all that, all that private stuff got going very early, and IBM, one way or another, they really took the lead. Mm-hmm. Big Blue, yeah. And the IBM 701, which was their first real commercial full machine, that was the exact copy of the von Neumann computer. I mean, they, they had engineers come down every week and, and talk to the engineers here. There was no, no secret about that. They were, they were copying that machine. So what did happen to the Maniac, this really pioneering computer that, uh, by the way, we haven't talked about its technology, but it was run basically by vacuum tubes, using vacuum tubes as, as switches and as storage and, Well, the, the clever thing was it used cathode ray tubes for memory. The memory was actually <laughs> spots, charged spots on the face of these tubes, like an old black and white television tube. If you, if you turn the TV off, you know, 30 seconds later, there'd still be static on the screen. They yeah. used that sort of odd phenomena to their advantage to store the data. So that was the memory. Very clever, but very difficult to keep running. Oh, God, but, yes, yeah. <laughs> so it was given to Princeton University, and Julian Bigelow arranged for it to go to the Smithsonian, where it still is. Oh, so it exists. We can look it at exists. it. No, it was on display. It's not on display. And oh. I'm uh, hoping that it will go back on display, either at the Smithsonian or perhaps at the... the we have now a fantastic computer history museum in in California, in Mountain View, and that it's not a hard. I mean, you could move it in a large pickup truck. It's not a huge thing, and uh, so either somehow or other, it should go back on public display. Mm-hmm. It was, Julian did a fantastic job of making sure you know it was in perfect shape when it went to the Smithsonian. It's 
it's still in perfect shape today. You said Julian. You mean Julian, Julian Bigelow? Julian Bigelow, the, who was the, the chief engineer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he felt, you know, he, he had a great love for that machine and, and, and built it. You know, it was, it, was, it was a work of engineering art, the way it physically looked and worked. It was like a V40 engine with, with 40 cylinders on each, or 20 cylinders on each side. <laughs> the cylinders were these uh, cathode ray tubes right. uh, so used for storage? Like an engine. And you could, you know, you could go in there with a sixth-grade class and explain to them how it worked. You could see it was very visual and open and, and just a beautiful thing to look at. Yeah, that's one huge change. Not only are our computers much more powerful, I mean, my cell phone is many times more powerful than the Maniac was. Do you have a number, a, yeah, an order my, of magnitude? My current laptop is 200 billion times more powerful. <laughs> then, then what was at the time one of the most powerful computers on Earth? <laughs> that's amazing. And our cell phones are, you know, probably billions of times more powerful as well. Yeah, oh, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, one thing about those is you could see things, uh, and now we can't see anything. We can see the display, but what's going on inside? Oh, forget it, you know. But uh, I want to go back to some of these uh, really um, mind-blowing concepts. Uh, you, you veer in the book between the details of history, who did what, and these really, really big ideas about computing and about information. Um one I wanted to ask you about, uh, you do talk a lot about the relationship between computers and living systems and the differences, as we were talking a moment ago. And uh, you write, um, how does nature with sloppy hardware and sloppy coding produce such reliable results? Well, you, then you introduce the idea of a pulse frequency coded system. You say that that's what natural systems are in some way. Meaning is conveyed by the frequency at which pulses are transmitted. It doesn't depend on an exact bit being uh, in the exact right place at the right time. Now, this is me talking. I'm no longer right. quoting. But it's statistical. It's probabilistic. <laughs> Explain okay, that well, concept. Well, that's how <laughs> brains or nervous systems work. If you, if you take apart a brain, and in fact, I was just at a fantastic meeting in Seattle with the, some of the latest brain research where we really are able to start seeing in 3D in real time what, what neurons are doing. You know, there's no digital code. There's, you know, no matter how closely you look at a brain, you're not going to find some code that means something. Uh, what means something is where neurons connect and how frequently they fire, you know, how many, sort of how often they click. Um, and that's a very robust way of encoding the information because if you... You know, if you miss one bit or something, you don't lose the meaning. The thing, the thing never crashes. That's why brains are so tough. You can, you can have a terrible motorcycle accident and, you know, be in the hospital for four weeks, unable to speak, and then slowly learn to speak again. You know, the information isn't necessarily lost. So, for, and, so for instance, a, a neuron fires uh, and, and sends a, an electrical impulse, but it does so many, many times, and it's sort of the average that counts? Right, the, exactly, the frequency. So there's mm -hmm. like a... Like music, the note, you know, the, what we perceive as pitch is the frequency of the vibrations, and that's that's what counts, not the, not any sort of, you know, digital message. And what's interesting is that that's how more and more of the computation on the internet is being conveyed. Sort of what Google keeps track of is not, not so much what the code is, but where it is and how frequently it's being connected to something else, and that that of itself has meaning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, maybe the biggest idea in the book is the one that you mentioned earlier in the interview uh, that's been with you for a very long time, which is the idea that computers are collectively in themselves a kind of uh, universe of numbers operating autonomously, of multiplying, uh, altering each other, mutating, uh, and so on, very much like a, a living system. Uh, and that what happened at Princeton uh, at the Institute for Advanced Study uh, 60 years ago or so was to set this whole, you know, artificial world in motion. Yeah, and the problem is that it, it doesn't operate on our time scale. We operate in a universe that has sort of a fixed time clock at which things happen. In the computational universe, we, we sort of fool ourselves thinking our computers have clocks, but actually... There is no clock, and, and Julian Bigelow was very emphatic about that. He said there's, 
There, no time is there. There's sequence, but there's not time. And that's why the computational world, to us, it looks like it's just eternally speeding up. That what happened was, that, you know, these guys and these women built this machine where you put in uh, 10 bits for an address and 10 bits for an instruction. It's 20. You get 40 bits back. You get back a 40-bit string. So it's like 1 plus 1 equals 4. And it just kept growing from that. And, and that's why you, every year now, you can go out, you know, you buy a memory stick with t- twice the memory for half the, the price. It's just, it just has kept expanding almost explosively and cycling faster and faster. So from the point of view, if you were in this digital universe it would, it, and we're looking at our universe, it would look like our universe is slowing down. So why are these people <laughs> running slower and slower and slower? It's, it's, it's running on a very... An, completely different kind of time and and we've never seen anything like that before that's why I, th- I think you know this digital universe it's not a metaphor it, it actually is something it's not on the one hand it's well it's you know it's Facebook and Apple and everything else all put together that's the digital universe but there actually is something fundamentally new and different going on um, you say it's not a metaphor um, you, you, do you think it really is a kind of living system then um if you ask me to say yes or no, I would say yes. It's at, <laughs> it's at the early stages. I mean, it's at the it's the beginning of something that's only, you know, it's only sixty years old. Nothing nothing in our evolution happens that well. Some things do, but but it's amazingly fast how this is is happening and how quickly. I mean, look look back ten years. And, um, when when I wrote Darwin Among the Machines, wireless seemed like you know science fiction. <laughs> Something like Wi-Fi was there was one or two companies trying to do it, but you know, you know a lot of people say, oh, of course, you're right that you know computing technology has leapt ahead at an increasingly fast rate, according to roughly to Moore's law and all of that. Um, no doubt about it. But that this thing is alive, as opposed to these are just machines doing what we tell them to do. We're doing what we're doing what they tell <laughs> us to do. I mean, and by you know, the question is how you define alive, and we, we don't know how to define life in the biological world, so it's it's even harder to define it. Well, i got to tell you, when I first read your proposition that this is a kind of living universe inside our machines that is, you know, going about its own form of evolution, uh, I thought, oh, come on, this is mystical or biomorphic. Uh, and then I thought again, well, of course, if you're, uh, if you're a materialist, if you're... Um, you know, a physicist or most biologists, you would say that living things themselves are a form of information, that they are organized molecules, that those molecules are organizing according to an algorithm, which is natural selection. And if that's what's happening inside of computers as well, who's to say it's not the same thing? Yeah, what's interesting is that the better we our understanding of biology becomes the more we understand biology as, as really being the work of machines. I mean, once you, when you understand mm-hmm. it at a molecular mm-hmm. level, right. the molecules are, are very much machine-like, and, and collectively they become lifelike. And I think that what's most interesting is not the question of whether, you know, electronics is alive or, or whatever, but the, is how these two worlds are coming together now. That what we've learned about life since 1953, which is sort of strange that the the same year they get this computer running, we discover the digital structure of DNA. You know, life itself has this digital aspect to it. Sort of, so sort of the machine code of, of life, the DNA sequences that we now do every day, only because we have computers, is very close to the machine language of the computers themselves. So the, the computers are, are sort of speaking directly. You know, we are, we are now reading and writing DNA sequences directly in and out of computers without any human intervention. Mm-hmm. You can't really separate the two worlds anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it would seem entirely science fiction that you would, you know, that a computer would be reading and writing uh, sequences of nucleotides that code for proteins. You say reading and writing, uh, right? You know that it can synthesize sequences. Exactly. I mean, you can you can do it. You know, all you need is a credit card now to to access a computer that will deliver sequences to your door. <laughs> Um, now, some people would, I, I'm sure some people listening to this, might be having a hard time with us likening the glory of the natural world with its plants and animals and its endless forms, most beautiful, as Darwin described, nature, uh, and the 
soulless uh, abstraction of bits moving around inside you know electrical circuits you as someone who obviously has a deep connection to nature you lived in a tree for god's sakes for 3 years do you have any problem with that i have huge problems with it and <laughs> i think we we are running terrible risk of of losing connections to the natural world that we built up over hundreds of millions of years and it cut so close to my own heart. I mean, I'm, I'm a creature of the natural world, and I, I don't want to give that up. On the other hand, life is unbelievably resilient. And in a way, you know, life took advantage of the sort of replicative abilities of these strings of nucleotides to uh, encode the details of organisms. And, and in, a, in a strange way, it's, it's, it, you can look at it that life is doing that again, that, that Nucleotides are not the only way to store genetic information, and, and it may end up being stored in a different way, but it'll still be life. But the view that would reduce life just to information and say, you know, what really matters is that it's propagating information, it happens to be in the form of DNA, and that the exoskeleton, that is the, the actual tree or the actual body of the giraffe or the fish, doesn't really matter. Oh, no, it matters a lot, or it matters to me. I mean, I, I think that is what matters is the, the, the bodily form uh-huh but what form the genetic information is conveyed in may may not matter as much as the uh, you know a giraffe would still be a giraffe whether whether it was propagated by a, a string of nucleotides or a string of something else it could, it could still be a giraffe but, but it, could, it could be something more amazing i mean it could you, you could take the same leap that we took you know in biology, we've taken lots of leaps. So I, I think the jury is still out, and our job is to make sure we don't make some horrible mistake and, you know, end up getting rid of everything except chickens. <laughs> well, I was thinking of getting rid of everything but bits. Right. No, I, and that's entirely possible. <laughs> <laughs> where, the, where, again, the physical manifestation is meaningless, where it is all information. Um, but you're not cool with that, even though some of the um, concepts you you advance here would suggest that maybe at bottom those are the same things. No, I'm strongly against that. Uh huh. I wouldn't want to say violently, but close to against <laughs> the, the view that there's this great world ahead of us, of us when it's all computers. I think that's just a disaster. Wow. So your book must have been kind of uncomfortable in some places for you. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I believe in in keeping your eyes open about the possibilities. I mean, it's, just, it's just very much the same question as nuclear weapons. I mean, you you know, you need to understand them if you want to know what to be afraid of. You need to kind of know how to build them in order to know how to take them apart. It's the same with computers. I mean, it's a very dangerous thing, I think, that our world becomes run by machines we don't understand. And that's, that's in my view, the way to understand them is to understand how they began. Hmm. Uh, George, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you one more question. Some listeners who know about you and know about your dad, Freeman Dyson, uh, would want me to ask this. He's come out as a global warming or climate change skeptic. Not that he doesn't think the planet uh, is warming, but rather that he doubts that we understand why. He doubts that we understand what to do. And he doubts even that this warming is necessarily a bad thing. Do you guys have arguments about that, or do you... No, I mean, you're, you're right on sort of two or three out of those four. Oh, things. really? Correct me, please. He's, well, he's not skeptical about about warming. He right, certainly, right. No, I tried to make that point, that yeah. it is warming. Yeah. And he's, and I think, I think even skepticism is not, not, maybe not the right word, but he, he questions whether we know what to do. And, and I question it just as strongly as him. We don't know what to do about this problem. And, and we have a very bad track record of... Uh, particularly in, in governments, of doing exactly the wrong thing to solve a problem. Sort of like, you know, when you have a fire, okay, throw liquid on it, but not gasoline. May well do exactly the wrong thing by what by trying to solve this problem. So I think he's quite wise and, and very mathematical. I mean, he looks at everything as a mathematician. So I, I think where he's gone wrong is that he has been very undiplomatic. Mm. And, with nuclear weapons, you know, Freeman was wonderful. He he has the respect of the the pro nuclear government weapons labs people still respect Freeman Dyson and he you know, he's on their committees, he goes to their labs. And the strongest of the anti nuclear community also respect him and, and listen to him. He sort of stayed marvelously in the middle. And somehow on the climate debate 
he got pushed to one side where he's seen as a, a skeptic. I think anyone who questions him should read his, you know, he wrote one of the original papers on, on carbon dioxide mitigation in 1976, looking at the question of, you know, how many trees do we have to plant to solve this problem? Mm-hmm. And that's the way to solve it. The way to solve the carbon dioxide problem, if if you do want to solve it, is is by planting trees. I mean, that's what David, that's where David Brower and Freeman mm-hmm. Dyson agreed. But, but cutting em- emissions wouldn't hurt either, yeah? No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't hurt, but it, but it's not going to solve the problem. I think you, you just you do the math. A lot of these things that people are selling as solutions are not going to solve the problem, and we're going to be stuck with a worse problem. And in that sense, I think he's quite rational and humanistic about it. That you don't want solutions that hurt more people than they help, and that that essentially become solutions that that rich people profit from and poor people suffer from. And hmm. In that sense, he's. I think he's. Right, and I wish people would would listen to him a little more open-mindedly, and I wish he would be more diplomatic in how he <laughs> how he says it. Well, he has expressed doubt that that warming is necessarily a bad thing, though, too, and that's a really provocative statement. But it's true. Why, in any question, you should look at both sides, and, yeah. and you, it's not fair to only look at the supposedly harmful effects of warming and not look at at what might be positive effects for for some places. I mean, and it really, we really do not have, and I think he's right there too, that we, we do not have predictive models. You can have models that doesn't mean that they are predictive. It's very true. And he's done a lot of modeling. It's not that he's uninformed and doesn't uh, understand the science. It's that he doesn't have patience for, for people who sort of have their minds made up before they... <laughs> Well, it's complicated by the fact that the stakes are so high. I think people are saying, how much longer do we have to wait, uh, you know, for the evidence to, I mean, we don't have forever. Um, so I think that's part of why it's it's much more heated, if I can use the pun. Right. No, and we should be, but we should be doing the right thing. Anyway, there was, there was a conference here, in, von Neumann held a conference in 1955 on climate change. Really? And uh, Oppenheimer gave the opening address and said, "This is going to be a bigger problem than nuclear weapons." Seriously, they knew about the greenhouse. Sure. Yeah, they, and they and they had exactly the same arguments. They argued about the ocean. They argued about seaweed. They argued about clouds. They argued. I mean, and nobody reads the proceedings of that 1955 conference. Wow. Well, George, it has been a real pleasure, and I really appreciate your taking the time. Great, it's a great, great conversation. George Dyson. His new book is Turing's Cathedral: The Origins of the Digital Universe. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. We are online, as always, at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'll run the numbers through the floor. Here's how it goes. I'll crack the codes. I'll crack the codes in any war. I'll crack the codes.